get your Bibles and uh, this morning and we're going to look into God's Word and ask Him to feed us and instruct us and give us wisdom. I, I want to talk to you this morning about the potter's, P-O-T-T-E-R-S, plan, the potter's plan. And, and we're going to go to Jeremiah in just a second, but before we get there, uh, I want us to go into the New Testament, so go with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is right before 2 Peter, of course. Yep, that was pretty funny. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 1, and I, I want to read just a couple of verses. I'm going to make very minimal comments on here so we can <clears throat> uh, kind of move through things this morning. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Flip over to chapter 4. We'll read a few more verses. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, One more. And if the righteous is scarcely, scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to to a faithful creator while doing good. And I want to read one more, and that's James chapter 1. 
One more passage here. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, in concluding this little kind of introductory thoughts here that we'll come back to and touch on again here in a little bit. I want to say something, especially about James. James' emphasis emphasizes what what is said in all of these passages. He kind of brings it to a a point. He says, note that the words he uses, steadfast, he uses steadfastness twice, tossed, unstable. So he talks about the steadfastness that comes from God and and that trial can produce, but he also talks about those who are unsteady. He actually says that that double-minded man is going to receive nothing. Trials tend to unsteady us. They make us question, perhaps doubt, evaluate, not all that's bad. Sometimes they cause us to um, flounder. Sometimes they call, and, and think about that, if you think about and and in that floundering grasp at anything we think might save us. But trusting the Lord and having faith brings steadiness. And steadiness brings completeness, completeness and maturity. So, That's why Peter, and I'm not going to go back and read all that again, but that's why Peter talked about the surety of our salvation. Because that is sure. And when things get hard, God's provision through his son Jesus Christ is still sure. His salvation is settled. Now, so... In dealing with trials and difficulties and, and knowing the, 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 the sure foundation of the Lord, how do you suppose that these fellows, and in this instance I'm talking about James and Peter, came to that, those understandings? I've suggested to you that they came to those understandings through a process of testing and proving them. Now, We're going to come back to that in a minute, but let's go to the book of Jeremiah, and I want to talk to you a couple things here. And the first thing we're going to talk about is some doctrine. Try to give give doctrine every week. I don't always tell you what it is, but it's it's almost always there. So um, we're going to read a a couple things, and we're going to come back... uh, come back and look at some different things here. If you look at chapter 22 you get a list of the kings. Um, 
It, it actually begins about verse 10, somewhere in there. My Bible has a little heading. It says, Message to the Sons of Josiah. And it begins with Shalom or Jehoahaz. And then it goes down through the kings, Jehoiakim, and later Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, or Kaniah, as he's called. It goes down through these final kings of Judah. And he mentions them by name. And they all failed. And if you... if, if you do a little study on this, you'll find out that some of them only ruled two or three months. And they were deposed by the, the powers the, that were over them, either Egypt or, or Babylon. And then we get to chapter 23, where once again he, he talks about the, the judgment and uh, poor shepherds. And then he gets down to verse 5. I'm going to read this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and all Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Some of your Bibles have a footnote, perhaps, that actually gives you the, the Hebrew that would, be, that would be used there. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, he's not talking about an earthly king. Once the family of Josiah was done, There were no more kings. When we get to uh, the time of Jesus and we talk about King Herod, King Herod was an Idumean. He was like a cousin. He was not of the lineage of David. And then his sons ruled after him. Actually, King Herod... um, was appointed, <laughs> he was appointed king, how do you do that, huh? So he was appointed king by the Romans and most probably paid a lofty sum to get the position. He was loyal to Rome and so on and so forth. He does not fit in this genealogy. He was not a real king. So, When you read this, and you say, well, there's going to be a king that's going to come, and he's going to fix all this stuff up. And yes, and he has yet to come. But he will come. And he'll be a king not only of Judah, but also of Judah and Israel. And he will deal in justice, and he will deal in righteousness, and there will be safety, and there will be security, and he will provide the righteousness there. And this is a direct... Um, uh, hint and push toward the substitutionary death of the real king, the branch from David, who provides for us his righteousness. So we, we need to understand that when we talk about salvation. I, I read uh, 
I, I, I got here early today, and I got I got stuff done, and, and I looked. Uh, I always get on Facebook every Sunday morning and put on the the sermon title, and uh, and I read this most unfortunate screed, for lack of a better term. Um, from some woman who claimed she was raised in a religiously abusive Christian environment. Um, Because basically they were telling her how a Christian should live. Not being a Christian, she resented it. Um, The other side of that is is that we can't expect people who are not Christians to live like Christians are supposed to live. The bottom line of what I'm trying to get to here is our righteousness is from Jesus Christ. It is not our own. It is imputed to us by faith because of His grace. He gives it to us. Jesus came to not only pay for our sins, but he also came to give us his righteousness. When the Father looks at me and looks at you, if you're a believer, he doesn't see your righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Perfect righteousness. A gift of grace. Now, I want to share one other thing with you and I want you to turn with me to chapter 29 and we're going to talk so when you talk about grace and salvation and and righteousness I want to talk to you here about how to read scripture and we've talked about some of this before but it is it is so uh, (laughs) I put at the bottom of this I'm starting it out with it I guess Doggone it. Why don't people think? You know, I'm going to bring my mug in that's got a picture of R.C. Sproul on it and it's got a little quote from him that says, what's wrong with you people? Um, (laughs) Because he was in a... And if you want to look it up, you can. He was in a question and answer thing and somebody asked a dumb question. Say, well, there are no dumb questions. Oh, yes, there are. Okay. They're dumb answers too, but they're they're dumb questions. Well, you know why? Why don't we think so? Um, and let me preface this, or let me uh, answer my question. We don't think because we'd rather feel. And if someone will tell us something that makes us feel good, we're not going to think too much about it. So in chapter twenty-nine. Jeremiah writes a letter to the people who have already been taken captive by the Babylonians. Among them would have been Daniel. Okay? So when there wasn't a destruction, Jerusalem wasn't destroyed, but they were conquered, so to speak, in the effect that they had to pay tribute. And um, Nebuchadnezzar took captives back to Babylon, and he sent up 
he set up government structures. As a matter of fact, he said who was going to be king. He put a king in place. He said, you're going to be king for me. And as you read some of this and get into the details of what you're going to read, you're, you're going to read that Jeremiah is saying, listen, don't rebel against this guy. And the nationalists in Israel are saying, we don't have to do what he says. We're going to rebel against him. And they do rebel against him. And then eventually he brings an army and he besieges the city and destroys it. Destroys it. So he writes a letter in chapter 29. He writes a letter to the exiles. Now listen to what he says in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now some of the books that we've read over the past couple of years about how to live in this culture that's, that is increasingly non-Christian, this applies. We live here. We do what God has told us to do. We are productive and we pray for our culture so that it will be productive and so that we'll have peace. And by the way, you can cross-reference that if you want to what Timothy wrote where he says, I want everyone everywhere to lift up holy hands and to pray for leaders and all those in authority that what? That we may live quiet and peaceable lives. So he writes this letter to the exiles. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord God of, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And he goes on, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. So some of the prophets, um, we don't have the specifics, but some of the prophets were apparently saying to them, this is only going to be a little while. Don't put down roots. Don't get too comfortable here. And what Jeremiah says, no, that's not the case. You're going to be there more than a generation. So build homes, plant your gardens, get married, have children, and pray for the welfare of that community because you're going to be living there. Now, um, there's more than one place where the 70 years is brought up, but in one place, Jeremiah is very specific that when the 70 years is over, God's going to judge Babylon, interestingly enough. And by the way, he calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. He says, I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, to judge you ungodly people. And when the 70 years is over, I'm going to judge them for their iniquity. Now, I said all that to get you to verse to this next verse. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay? 
Verse 11 is a wonderful verse if it's taken within context. So let me give you this. Um, the primary application is that that verse is written to these exiles. That after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. I have plans for you, and they're plans for good, and they're not plans of evil. And just be faithful where you are, and I'm going to fulfill my word. How many following me here? That was not written for you. That was written for them. The best that we can get out of it is is not specific. It's a general statement about the loving care of God. And anything more than that has to be supported by other scriptures. I got a good friend, I don't know if he listens to these or not, but sends me emails on a regular basis and he quotes this scripture at the bottom of it. It's poor exegesis, it's a poor understanding of scripture, it's taken completely out of context, it has no, that has nothing whatsoever to do with me. He could just as well as easily say, God loves you. And probably it would be more appropriate scripturally because it wouldn't be taken out of context. I hope you understand what I'm saying here, folks. If we're going to survive in this broken world that is going to be increasingly hostile to, to Christian reality, we must think. Bless your heart. All right. So I don't have to think of Scripture. It's just what God says. No, you've you got to think. So, all right, I'm going to leave that. But I, there's just, uh, just some instruction. We, we have to read Scripture in its context, understand what it was being said. Now, I looked at, we looked at two Scriptures here. One of them, well, I tried to explain to you that it could not have been for an earthly king. There has been no earthly king since then. Jeremiah wrote that. He was pointing to the one who is going to be the king of kings. He is, the, by the way, the Lord, our righteousness, the divine name. And then this scripture, which its application was for those people. And I... I, I I can't belabor the point, but there's all sorts... You know, I, I will say this. If most of us treated everyday language that we exchange the way we treat Scripture, we would be staggering and stumbling about in circles in a state of utter confusion. Because when you said to me, I'm glad to have lunch with you, I'll pick you up at 11.30... If we did, if we did, if I did, took that statement the way I put scripture, I would be ready at 11.30 every single day. I might even be calling you and saying, where are you? And you'd say, well, that was yesterday. But you said be ready at 11.30. Does that make sense, anyone? All right. It's awful quiet in here, but that's okay. You guys awake? All the, all the snow shovelers this morning have worn themselves out. Came in 
had some biscuits and gravy. <laughs> All right. Now, let's get personal. Go to chapter 20. I'm going to read this whole chapter. You ready? So whatever Bible version you got probably be different than mine. By the way, there's a couple people by the name of Pasher mentioned here. They're different. They got different fathers. So it's not the same people, but it's not that critical to what we're talking about. Now Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who was a chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day, when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He will carry them captive to Babylon, and he shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. So don't you love it? The guy is preaching these, pe- these things and telling these people to repent because judgment's coming. And one of the guys, one of the officials gets offended, apparently has authority to do so, has him beaten and thrown into prison. And when he releases him, he just goes right back onto his message. Only this time, he gets a little more specific. And he says, and you, what's he call him? Terror on every side. <laughs> you, Mr. Terror on every side, because everyone around you is going to die, except you and your family, and you're all going to go into captivity, and there you will die and be buried. All right. Now let's go on the bumpy road. Verse 7. Oh Lord, you have deceived me. And I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I've become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I cry out, I shout, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly ashamed. 
for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts who test the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise to the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my, my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow? And spend my days in shame. What's going on here? Let me just ask you a rhetorical question. Why do we think everything will always feel good? It is just not so. And I, I don't want to be critical and I don't want to be too bold, but those folks who are telling us that it, it should be so have not been sent by God. That is not the word of God for people. There are times when we will feel discouraged, frightened, alone, abandoned, confused. We will deal with grief, with sorrow, with regret, with physical and mental weariness, and I could, I could go on and on. Every single one of us. This broken world, sometimes the things that give us the most delight, also give us the greatest pain. Notice, in, in, in verses 11 and 12, he talks about how God's going to bring judgment. And, it, you know, it seems like he's got himself all settled down. And, it, he's, you know, he's got it figured out. He says in verse 13, let's praise God, give God praise. And then in verse 14, he curses the day he was born. He goes from trusting God and having praise to curses. He's unsteady. Remember what we said in the introduction? These trials come so that we can learn to trust in God and we can be steady in Him and not be unsteady and not be blown by every wind of doctrine, etc., etc. So the, the, the unsteadiness that's there. And yet, somehow through all of this, grace sustained Him. There is no recrimination. And I, time doesn't allow us today, but you, you could do a study on it if you wished. You could read about Elijah and, and his great victory and then his depression. I'll just say depression. You could read where Paul said that he, at points at a time he was pressed out of measure so that he despaired even of life. And in the next sentence he says, but God had mercy on him. Um. I'm going to read to you, I, I've made some comments. I said there's some of these things about this life, life application study, but I didn't like uh, 
But I, I want to read to you the introduction they gave to Jeremiah because it's, it's spot on. I, I kind of alluded to it a couple weeks ago. It's entitled, now again, this is a life application Bible. This is what we give to the, to the graduating seniors every year to help them make decisions as they go through life. And the title of this is, What is Success? Most definitions have to do with achieving goals and acquiring wealth, prestige, favor, and power. So-called success, successful people enjoy the good life, and there's quotes around it, being financially and emotionally secure, being surrounded by admirers and enjoying the fruits of their labor. They are leaders, opinion makers, and trend centers. Their example is emulated. Their accomplishments are noticed. Their, excuse me, their accomplishments are noticed. They know who they are and where they are going, and they strive confidently to meet their goals. <laughs> By these standards, Jeremiah was a miserable failure. For 40 years, he served as God's spokesman to Judah, and when he spoke, nobody listened. Consistently and passionately, he urged people to act, but nobody moved. And he certainly did not attain material success. He was poor and underwent severe deprivation to deliver his prophecies. He was rejected by his neighbors, chapters 11, verses 19 through 21. His family, chapter 12, verse 6. The false priests and prophets, 20, 1 and 2, 28, 1 through 17. His friends, 2010. His audience, 26, 8. And the kings of Judah, 36, 23. He was thrown into prison, chapter 37, and into a cistern, chapter 38. And he was taken to Egypt against his will, chapter 43. Throughout his life, Jeremiah stood alone, declaring God's message of doom and announcing the new covenant and weeping over the fate of his beloved country. In uh, In the eyes of the world, Jeremiah was not a success. But in God's eyes, Jeremiah is one of the most successful people in all history. True success, as measured by God, involves obedience and faithfulness. Regardless of opposition and personal cost, Jeremiah courageously and faithfully proclaimed the word of God. He was obedient to his calling. Jeremiah's book begins with his call to be a prophet. The next 38 chapters are prophecies about Israel, the nation united, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Jeremiah chapters 2 through 20 are general and undated, and Jeremiah 21 through 39 are particular and dated. The basic theme of Jeremiah's message is simple, repent and turn to God or he will punish you. Because the people rejected this warning, Jeremiah then began predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. This terrible event is described in Jeremiah 39. Jeremiah 40 through 45 describe the events following Jerusalem's fall. The book concludes with prophecies concerning a variety of nations and verses in chapters 46 through 52. As you read Jeremiah, feel with him as he agonizes over the message he must deliver. Pray with him for those who refuse to respond to the truth. And watch his example of faith and courage. Then commit yourself to being successful in God's eyes. It's not our feelings that are to be our guide. It's God's Word. It's not our blessing that's to be our goal. 
It's God's glory. In chapter 18, the Lord tells Jeremiah to go and watch the potter. And when and then he says to Jeremiah, he says, Are not these people like clay in the hands of the potter? And I'm the potter. I'm not going to paraphrase all of that, but he basically was saying to Jeremiah he could do what he wanted to with his people. Folks, the potter has a plan. And the most frustrating thing in the world is to be in rebellion against your master. There are times when pain and difficulty overcome us. And there are times when we even have trouble focusing on the right thing because the pain can be great. Anyone who's hit their thumb with a hammer knows what I'm talking about. Your thumb is throbbing and it, it feels about this big. And every time you go to reach for a coffee cup, you recoil because you're afraid you're going to bump it. And until it heals, and it does so gradually, that thing, be, if you're, or the same way with the toe, that thing becomes one of the most important things in your life. And until you hit it with a hammer, you didn't even realize it was there. As a matter of fact, had you realized it was there, you wouldn't have hit it with a hammer. And that's physical pain. It's also true with emotional pain. We get hurt, we get disappointed, we get discouraged. And sometimes it's hard for us to even see beyond that. That's why we need, that's why we need fellowship and that's why we come. That's why later we'll have a, a, a sharing time and a prayer time. There ought to be people with whom you can be open and honest and accountable and who will be open and honest and non-judgmental and accountable with you. They may tell you the truth but not in a judgmental way because every single one of us knows without the grace of God we fall. So we commit ourselves to the potter and we live not for this world, not for its blessings, not for its feelings. And when you read the book of Hebrews and you read that chapter where it talks about all the people who have faith, you get to this wonderful verse that says they went through all of this because they had their eyes on a better country. We're going to sing in a minute. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you today. Aware that we live in a broken world and that, Lord, we ourselves are broken and we only stand before you because of your grace. There are things that come to us on a regular basis that hurt and harm and would destroy and would pull us down. There's a constant temptation and pressure, Lord, it's pressure from this world to focus on ourselves. I pray you'll help us keep our eyes on your word and I pray you'll help us commit ourselves to your glory. 
lift our eyes to that better country. So that whatever comes our way, these trials come. As James said, we can count it all joy. Knowing we're in the hand of a loving potter. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.